Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Well, I hope you're all fine tonight. This week's case is more shocking than a Will Smith bitch lap. This week we go back to late 1994 Catasauqua, and that's in Pennsylvania, USA, where a husband will report his wife and child missing. References tonight are from The Morning Call, The Sentinel, again, Forensic Files, that's where I found it, and Convenient Suspect by Tammy Mao. Now, This book, I'm only referencing it now for your sake if you want to read it, and I'll explain more about that later. And of course, we got court records. Always a good thing to have. Okay, so we're going back to 1994, December 15. It's a Thursday in Catasauqua, Pennsylvania, about a two-hour drive west of New York City. Now it's here at 740 Front Street that 40-year-old Andrew Katranak, his wife, 26-year-old Joanne Katranak, and their 15-week-old son Alex lived after getting married on the 29th of May 1993. The Katranak house is quite a nice little place. It's two stories. It's got an attic as well and a basement. It's on a long skinny block with a laneway down the side. When Andrew bought the house, and this was before he met Joanne, he took to fixing it up as he had his own construction business. He was described as a quiet, mellow guy by one of the business owners where he bought supplies. The couple weren't really known for socialising around town, and from what I can see, Joanne was in constant contact with Andrew's mother, Veronica, and she would take little Alex to visit quite often. Joanne was quite smart, athletic, and hoped to one day be in the fashion industry. So on the morning of 15th of December 1994, Andrew leaves to go to work and Joanne is home planning to go and visit her mother-in-law with Alex to go Christmas shopping. At 12.30pm, Joanne goes out to her Toyota Corolla, which is parked at the back of the house. It's a long skinny block up the laneway there. And then she goes back inside. At 1.15pm, Joanne calls Veronica Katranak to organise going to her place in Salisbury Township with Alex and they're all going to do their Christmas shopping. Now, this is only 15, 20-minute drive south of the home. When Joanne hadn't arrived by 3pm, Veronica called the house but no one picked up and strangely, the answering machine didn't operate either. Now, I don't think I have to explain what an answering machine is because then I'd probably have to explain what a cassette tape was. How time goes by. Anyway, Veronica, after not being able to contact Joanne, calls Andrew and he has no idea and really isn't overly worried as yet. When Andrew does get home from work, he notices the phone isn't working and checks the whole house. He can't find Alex or Joanne, but in the basement, he sees that the phone cabling has been cut. Joanne's purse is gone. The baby bag with diapers is gone. And both Alex and Joanne's winter coats were gone. Nothing else, just just nothing else seems out of place. Now, what happens in the next few hours is a little bit sketchy. From what I gather, Andrew takes to look around outside and he can't see Joanne, Alex or her car. 
He does eventually go home, quickly repairs the cut phone line just by putting the wires together and he calls police. The next day, Joanne's father finds her car in the car park just down the street a bit. Now, Andrew didn't see her car there the night before, but Sam McCarty, who owns the McCarty bar across the street from the Catranax house, said he had noticed her car parked next to his later in the night. Now, if you want to Google this, you can actually see quite well where all these places are. So that's 740 Front Street. When police are called about the car being found, they come to the Katrinak house. They notice that the lock to the basement door has been broken. Now, this is suggesting a forced entry. When they ask Andrew to go and collect Joanne's car from the car park just down the road, he refuses, telling them that if there has been foul play, that the car might contain valuable evidence. Jeez, these cops. God. Anyway, it does get forensically examined and several long blonde hairs are found on the back of the driver's headrest, and the keys are on the floor. Now, these hairs had blood on them, and Joanne's hair is dark brown, but the blood on these blonde hairs would end up being Joanne's. As it's always the case, Andrew is the first potential suspect, but he is cleared early early on as he was at work that day. Now, still police think Joanne has simply run away with her child, and Andrew takes to walking the street every day in the hope of seeing something. Now, he knew Joanne wouldn't have just run away. He felt that his marriage was still in a honeymoon stage, and police interview neighbours and business people in the area, and although it's a pretty busy street, no one saw anything out of the ordinary. Still, there's no sign of Joanne or Alex by December the 21st, less than a week after going missing, so the FBI are called in. Examination of a bank account showed there's been absolutely no activity. And the case doesn't really go anywhere. The Catranacs weren't involved in any crime or deal drugs or have any real enemies. But one name does pop up, Patricia Rora. Now, it's found on the 12th of December, just a few days before Joanne and Alex go missing, Patricia Rora telephoned the Katrinak residents to speak with Andrew. Joanne, using profound language, told her to never call again, that she and Andrew were happily married with a baby and that she was to leave Andrew alone. I guess Patricia hoped Andrew would answer and not his wife. Now, as we pass Christmas and get into late March 1985, still no sign Andrew tells reporter that he had walked the streets every night looking for clues, just hoping to find something. But, you know, he had no idea what he was looking for. Joanne's mother, she kept the Christmas tree up in the hope she could finally spend this Christmas just gone with Joanne and Alex. Police still had no idea if it was a stranger abduction or a runaway or anything in between. Andrew was devastated and Joanne's parents insisted that if she wanted to leave Andrew, she would simply have just come home to them. Then on the 9th of April 1985, Andrew was in Louisiana looking for Joanne and Alex after he got a tip from a psychic when he got the news that his wife and baby boy had been found. It wasn't good news though. Their bodies were found in a field near the intersection of Best Station and Sagersville Road at Heidelberg Township, and that's just 25 minutes' drive northwest of their Catasauqua home. 
The Christmas tree in Joanne's parents' home was finally taken down, except for an ornament Joanne had made that was now hanging in the living room picture window. Jeez, he must have been desperate, just going around from tips from psychics, and then he gets this sort of news. How sad. Joanne was found on her back with her top pulled up slightly and her jeans open. On her chest was baby Alex. Next to them was the baby bag and Alex's favourite rattle was found nearby. An autopsy would find Joanne had been shot in the face once with a .22 calibre round but had sustained 19 blows to her head. The cause of death of Alex was unable to be determined and it was thought he may have died from exposure. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Joanne still had her jewellery on, her watch, and she had two $100 bills in her coat pocket. So there was no robbery or sexual motive in her killing. Police were on their hands and knees looking for evidence, and they used metal detectors, but they failed to find any casings or bullets. It was unknown whether a rifle or pistol was used. Forensics would find several long blonde hairs on this baby bag, and these would be similar to those that were found in Joanne's car. A cigarette butt was also found at the scene. So, police interview this Patricia Rora character. Now, the first thing to strike them is the fact that she has dark brown hair, not blonde. Patricia tells police at the time of Joanne's disappearance she was in North Carolina, that's 500 miles or 800 k's away, and had visited a local club, the Cowboy Nightlife. She also told them that she was buying a was buying horse feed that day, and she also denied having a .22 calibre gun, and denied calling the Catranax phone on the night of December 12. Rora also told them she didn't know the area where the bodies were found. She told them that that night she was getting square dance lessons as well, and named the instructor as William Jarrett. She also refused to give police hair samples. Okay, so they can't hold her or do anything, but they had plenty of work to do to check out Patricia's story. So before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about this Patricia Rora. Patricia Rora was born on January the 24th, 1964 in Eastern Pennsylvania. She dropped out of school at 17 and she would meet her future husband, Gary Gabbard. On the 19th of August 1982, they had a son, Charles, that died from SIDS just three months later on November the 20th. Rora and Gary Gabbard divorced not long after in 1983. Now Gary, it would mention later, and I'm going to paraphrase this a bit, Patricia ran with a bad crowd and didn't care much for the baby, but if he tried to get close to him, she would take him away. But she was happy to let her mother be with the baby. When Charles died, Gary said she seemed more upset when one of her dogs died than when her son died. Gary also said that he'd tried hard to block that part out of his life. (laughs) Gary. Patricia then moved to Pennsylvania. She met Andrew Katranak at Lehigh Restaurant and not long after, he moved into her place close by. She had a shitty work record with one real estate agency she worked for, letting her go because her work was not up to company standards, right? I think that's a very (laughs) diplomatic answer too. 
She worked selling cars at Bayless Oldsmobile in Reading, but didn't sell many cars and just failed to turn up to work anymore after two months. In 1986, Andrew and Patricia share a place in Salisbury, but they break up in 1989. Now, Andrew ends up buying that place at 740 Front Street, and he lets her stay in there for a few days in 1991 after she alleges that she was beaten up by her boyfriend. And Andrew had yet to meet Joanne at this stage. So, Patricia's place, she defaults on the mortgage, moves to North Carolina and gets a new man called Brian Ward and they have a baby named Nicole. Patricia did like horses and participated in horse events. <clears throat> horse events? Is, is that the word? I think people are going to have to let me know on that one. Anyway, if anyone in the area had a horse stolen, they would first think of Patricia. Although she was accused of stealing horses, mistreating and underfeeding horses, breaking into barns and the like, she was never convicted. But she would end up going down once on a shoplifting charge. Now, people said she could be a nice person, but usually defaulted to being a bit of an asshole. So back to the police investigation. Well, this isn't going to take a couple of months. This is going to take years. And it's the advancement of forensic science that will really help build this case. In early 1995, Rora got busted shoplifting at a Linwood Walmart, earning herself 12 months probation. By July the 28th, 1995, police have a warrant to search Rora's Linwood home. They also took hair samples for forensic examination. Now, previously... The original hair strands that were found in the car and at the location the bodies were dumped didn't have enough root material to get proper DNA results using the nuclear DNA analysis. But then came along mitochondrial DNA techniques. Now this uses a different part of the cell and then by using polymerase chain reaction techniques that tiny amount of DNA is multiplied. Now probably everyone's had a PCR test now for COVID. It's basically the same thing. They stick that probe up your nose and twirl it around a bit, get a little bit of COVID on the end and then multiply it and analyse it. Now, please let me know if I'm right or wrong on this, but I'm not a biologist. And pretty much the hair with Joanne or Alex blood on it found on Joanne's headrest in her car was a match for Rora. And it was the same with the hair found in the baby bag in the woods. The cigarette butt they found, well, DNA analysis showed it to be a match for Rora as well. Now, you all know that when I say match, you know I mean pretty much so close to a match that it probably isn't anyone else. Also, they found a photo of Rora taken around the time that Joanne and Alex disappeared. And guess what? She coloured her hair blonde, the same colour as the hair in the car and on the baby basket. Now, police theorised that the one gunshot to the face and then the 19 blows to the head to kill Joanne was not only a crime of passion, or maybe it would be described better as extreme jealousy and rage, but the one shot suggested the gun jammed. Now, Rora told police that she had no firearms, but a friend of hers would tell police that she had a small pistol. And guess what? After one shot, it would jam. It's circumstantial, but it's very interesting. Now, looking at her phone records, 
These showed that Rora would often ring long distance, like every day, multiple times a day, and there was at least one call to her house, from, to the Catranach's house, before the 12th of December, 94. But then there's this four or five day gap in these long distance calls, and that's between the 12th and the 16th of December. Now, this also suggests that she wasn't at home in North Carolina in the days around Joanne and Alex going missing. Now, she reckons she was at the Cowboy Nightlife Club at Asheville, North Carolina, but their sign-in book, which everyone has to sign to get into the place, has no record of her being there. When she told police that she'd never been to the area where the bodies were found, well, that turned out to be a liar. She worked there, just not far from there, and the area was popular with horse riders. Uh, is that the right word again, horse riders? I'm really not familiar with horse turns. I don't know, maybe jockey? Anyway, William Jarrett, the square dance instructor that Rora said was giving her lessons on the night or afternoon or wherever Joanne went missing, well, Rora called him and asked him to tell police she was with him that night or they were going to fry her. He was thinking, what? Who would say that, that they're going to fry her? And this was secretly recorded. Sandra Ireland, Rora's half-sister, she told police their mother Patricia Chambers appeared unexpectedly at their home shortly after the victims' bodies were found. Now, Rora's mother showed them a small handgun, said that she didn't want police to find it and asked the Irelands to keep it. Now, they just went, no, no fucking way. They declined to aid Rora's mother in hiding the gun from police. So... That's a lot of shit pointing to one person as the perpetrator. Anyway, on 6 a.m. June 24th, 1997, police arrested Patricia Rora at her Linwood, North Carolina home. Rora cried and apologised to her 18-month-old baby, Nicole. Now, she said, I'm sorry for doing this to you. And she told the arresting officers that she would never see little Nicole again. She then went on to say, if I knew I was going to get caught, I never would have brought you into this world. Now, Patricia Rora would be charged with two counts of first degree murder and kidnapping. She knocked back a plea deal to take the death penalty off the table. And when she declined, she said, how could I explain to my daughter years later that I took a plea for something I didn't do? So, the prosecutors would allege in the trial that Patricia, after having a relationship with Andrew Katranak, and she had that for several years, kept in contact with him, even staying with him for a few days after she told Andrew she had been abused by a boyfriend. But then Andrew found a new girlfriend, made made her his wife, and they had a child together. But Patricia still kept calling the house, which started to piss Joanne off resulting one night in an explicative field-heated exchange on the phone where Joanne told her to stop calling, that Andrew and her were happily married with a child and to leave them alone, and then she hung up. This pissed Patricia off and she stalked their residence for a few days. Now, she'd already knew the layout of the house from staying there previously, so that was a big help for her. Then around midday on the 15th of December 1994, Patricia forced her way into the basement area and she overheard Joanne talking to her mother-in-law about going to meet for Christmas shopping. 
When Joanne hung up the phone, Patricia cut the phone lines to prevent any further calls. As Joanne left out the back of the house to, to where her Corolla was parked with Alex and the baby bag, Patricia ambushed her at gunpoint and made her get in the car. She drove to Heidelberg Township to a horse riding track where at gunpoint she told Joanne to walk into the woods with Alex and the baby bag. Here she shot Joanne in the face but the gun jammed and she finished her off with 19 blows to the head. She then placed Alex on her chest and left with Alex most probably dying of exposure. She then drove away and late that night parked Joanne's Corolla in the McCarthy car park and like I said, that's just a couple of doors down and then she fled back to North Carolina. So, it's quite a circumstantial case. But the hair that was left behind, some with Joanne's or Alex's blood on it, I don't think they worked out exactly whose it was, put her at the scene at the time of the disappearance. And we've gone through all that other evidence already. On the 9th of March 1998, Patricia Rora was found guilty on both counts of first degree murder and kidnapping. The jury spared her the death penalty, but gave her two life sentences plus 10 to 20 years for the kidnapping. Now this isn't done and dusted. Even now there are calls for Patricia to be released. Now, this is where that book I mentioned at the start, The Convenient Suspect by Tammy Mal. Now, usually I buy a lot of books to do research and let you know about them as well so you can deep dive. But I read a lot about this book from a lot of people who did reviews and I decided not to buy it. Now, it looks like a real one-sided account from Patricia and it tries to bring into doubt a lot of the evidence, especially the hairs that were found and the analysis done on them. Now, Rora, she claims that the hair taken by police after they got the warrant was substituted and tested as if they were the hairs found at the crime scenes. Really, Patricia? Now, there is a Facebook page as well that goes on and on and on about it, how she should be released, called Free Patricia Roar, if you want to check that out. There's always going to be people on one side, always going to be people on the other side. Anyway, all Patricia Roar's appeals have failed. Still, as I said, she protests her innocence. She has nothing to lose there, of course. And she has some sort of following, like I said, on Facebook and all that, that thinks she's innocent. But the Innocence Project refused to take her case. So that says something. Me? I reckon she's guilty of sin. To kill a young mother and a baby after stalking them for days is pure evil. All Joanne did did was to tell her to fuck off and leave her family alone. But even after days to get over being told to go fuck yourself, Patricia didn't calm down and get over it. Kidnapping and murdering two people like that is just disgusting. Now, I'll read out a little bit I found in the Morning Call newspaper in the letters to the editor. It's headed, Rora, late in discovering God. To the editor, I am Joanne Katranak's brother and Alex Katranak's uncle. I want to thank the Pennsylvania State Police, specifically officers Theodore Coth, Robert Egan, Joseph Vasquez and Joseph Kosovar. I also want to thank Detective Tony Robinson from North Carolina for his part as well. 
Lastly, I want to thank Assistant District Attorney Michael McIntyre for putting together an unbelievable amount of evidence that ended in the conviction of Patricia Rohrer. I was not able to make the trip to Allentown from Western Pennsylvania on March the 30, but let me say, many killers are able to block their crimes from their minds, and I believe that Patricia Rohrer is doing just that. While it's true that she killed Joanne and Alex, it's also true that she's indirectly responsible for the death of my father, David O'Connor. She will not be killing any more of members of my family, directly or indirectly. Patricia Rohr has been quoted lately as saying she's found God. I hope she has, because we're all going to die someday and we'll have to stand in front of God. Patricia should have found God before she beat Joanne 19 times and shot her in the face, then left Alex to die in the cold. And that was from Michael J. O'Connor, Allegheny County. Now just another one of these cases that baffles the mind. Did she really think by killing Joanne and baby Alex that she would possibly able to be, get back with Andrew? She even had a young child herself. She should have been looking after her rather than chasing an old flame that was now married with his own kid. She had days to get over this. And I guess this is domestic violence or domestic violence. And we hear about it every day all over the world. We've had some awful cases in Australia recently and one is before the coroner now. I don't have an answer to it. Even if you get out of a violent domestic relationship, you can still get stalked and abused, or your new partner can. These people are fucked in the head, but usually very little that can be effectively done to stop these people. Well, that's another case done and dusted. Alright, I'd like to thank my patrons past, present and future for keeping the island lights on. Kurt Perich, I'm sure that's what it, how you say your name. Neil Buchanan, Yorkie and Lisa V, thank you so much. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you just want to shout me a beer, which I've got a beer next to me right now, I haven't had any sips or I burp, uh, donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. But can I just ask that maybe you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups, Facebook, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Best of all, it's free to do that. Help me out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you want. You don't have to use Apple or anything like that. You can go straight there and get it. And it links to merch, social media, all that bullshit as well. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. As I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fucker,